Welcome to the Death Panel. Today we have a very special episode visiting from the Death Panel epidemiology desk. (laughs) 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 We have got Abby Cardis and Justin Feldman back on the show. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm excited because this time we're going to talk about a lot more than the Great Barrington Declaration. We're we're here today for a big, comprehensive chat about reopening schools. You know, this is going to be the episode where we come out in favor of reopening schools at all costs. <laughs> so the next hour and a half is going to be... That's really the best thing you can do for the working class. Yeah, right? this is, is going to yeah. be a comprehensive breakdown of the most brutal letter rip strategy you could possibly <laughs> imagine. We've got some great ideas. I've got a slide deck prepared. Well, it was prepared for you by a, a certain <laughs> consulting firm, but... Uh, right. yeah, yeah for, it's great. We don't even have to do our own work anymore. Exactly. Something happened over the Christmas break and now we're we're uh, we're here. Yeah. Welcome to the death panel brought to you by McKinsey. No, but I I mean, this is something that let's say there are a lot of like conflicting takes on. But I think the two of you have been doing a really good job on Twitter. And also, Abby, you wrote this piece on Medium, just sort of breaking down a lot of the bullshit that's around like being circulating right now in relation to the school reopening debate. There's obviously this sort of narrative of we have to do it at all costs because there are things that are irrevocably left behind that children will lose out on all this like positive benefit and that really to keep the economy open, to keep society safe and socially reproducing the way that it needs to be, we need to open schools. We need to do it now, you know, first to open, last to close. Well, even one of uh, Joe Biden's main promises, right? He like, uh, well, not he, obviously, like his people (laughs) or whatever, whoever's ghostwriting all of his tweets and all the bullshit that they have him say, like, you know, he has like three key factors of like how they're going to do their coronavirus response, right? And it's like, we're going to do a million vaccinations in the first year and Mm -hmm. something else. And number three is reopen as many schools as possible, right? Yeah, exactly. And, And I think it's really important to talk about, especially as we go into to winter proper, there is a sort of like broad right wing and center coalition trying to advance this idea at all costs. So obviously it's a bad idea. I was wondering if we could just sort of get into some of what's like gotten you guys so frustrated about the school's debate from your, you know, professional opinions as uh, very online epidemiologists. There's there's so much I want to say, but what I'll start <laughs> by saying is that we hear a narrative uh, from media and from particular experts who are talking about school reopenings, that schools are safe with respect to COVID, full stop. sort of not qualifying the statement about school safety in relation to COVID. Uh, And it's often portrayed as if this is the consensus of the field of public health. And that's just not true. Most people in public health have not given this issue great thought, I must say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Those who have, some have questions uh, and and really the ones who are out in public working on this, and, and we'll get to that very visibly, they're not all in public health, one. And two, they seem very committed, regardless of what the particulars of the evidence say, to a position that schools are safe, can be made safe, even amid 
unmitigated high levels of community spread. Mm-hmm. I don't. I didn't even really want to wade this deeply into the debate, but <laughs> there's there's really no one on the side of hold on a second. Let's slow this down a little bit. Let's let's consider the actual costs to opening schools, and let's consider our actual ability to mitigate risk. Mm-hmm. There's very few people out in public, in media, online, getting the ear of uh, public officials who are saying this message. Yeah, I feel like the common line has always been to immediately defer to like, of course, we have to have schools open at all cost. And then go into whatever critique um, you might have of like the reopening strategy. There doesn't seem to be uh, any interest in like slowing down and actually studying a lot of this stuff because we haven't really done many comprehensive studies on what actually is going on in schools at all or how this behaves in children. Yeah, that was one thing that I was really curious about to hear both of your your takes on, which is that I, I feel like one big aspect of this. I don't even know that I want to call it a debate, but like this, you know, sort of, I guess, conversation that's happening is that a lot of just sort of bromides are being thrown out there. Some some like myths about uh, the safety of schools and those myths aren't necessarily supported by evidence. But there's also this real question about like how you figure out like what is like what is safety? Like what is safe enough? Like you guys talk a little bit about like why this is such a uh sort of from an evidence perspective, like so fraught? So I am sort of responding to you and also to the previous question, but something that has been rather frustrating, I think, to me to watch is the quality of the evidence that is available being so difficult to evaluate and the, you know, the guidelines and the commentaries that academic public health or like academic epidemiologists have been producing about schools, like don't actually give any (laughs) concrete guidance to, you know, school administrators and parents and, you know, people who have had over the past like 10 months to actually make decisions about what they're going about, what they're going to do and how they're going to handle this have been, I mean, I don't know. I, I really feel for, you know, teachers and parents and even school administrators who have had to make decisions, you know, about whether and how to close their schools for in-person instruction, basically without any concrete guidance from the field of public mm-hmm. health uh, or epidemiology. And then in terms of like the, oh my gosh, in terms of why the evidence is so <laughs> like difficult. I mean, like there, we could talk for probably all day about that. Um, (laughs) But I think that like, it's been difficult to study this because of the poor quality of like public health infrastructure in the US. Generally, you know, it's difficult to do random or pooled asymptomatic testing of school children when like there aren't enough tests, (laughs) right? And Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. when you know, the the county public health labs like can't process those tests like quickly enough to get like a real like a real time sense of what's happening. Um, I don't know of any like studies that are ongoing where like people have enrolled, you know, children specifically for the purpose of, you know, watching them as their school districts reopen. I'm sure that there have to be um, studies like that in the pipeline where people are kind of using school reopenings in the US as like a, a natural experiment. But I don't know. It's just, it's hard to get good, like actionable, real-time public health data, like in a country like the U S 
right now where like there's basically no centralized like infrastructure for administering tests and um, for contact tracing and things like that. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I'll try to give a detailed picture of what we know, what we don't know, and why it's mm-hmm. so hard to know a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So we COVID uh, is about a year old now. So you would think we had basic questions answered, like what's the deal <laughs> with kids in terms of health effects, um, risk of transmission to others, risk of catching the infection themselves. Turns out to be a complicated question. What we can say for sure is that children are very likely to have no symptoms or to have mild symptoms. Uh, and we can say that the risk of death is very low compared to adults, is about 200 or so children under 18 who are classified as having died of COVID in the US compared to well over 300,000 for older people. But then you get to the question of to what degree are they protected from infection and why? So you have different forms of evidence to draw on. There are hypotheses about children's biology, especially particular Mm -hmm. protein in nasal tissue. Uh, There's less of it if you're under 11 or 10 years old, let's say. So that's one idea that children may be less likely to get COVID if exposed But then there's questions around, are children more likely to be exposed? If children are half as likely to be infected once exposed, if they're twice as likely to be exposed, then the infection rate may be the same as adults. And what we're Mm -hmm. seeing in some studies um, that are doing, so the UK does a lot better than the US does in terms of uh, random systematic surveys of people for COVID infection they're finding that children have as high or even higher uh, incidence rates of COVID than adults, uh, with a particularly concerning spike in the last couple of weeks. Uh, In places where they do antibody testing of random samples, children have uh, either a bit lower or as high prevalence of past COVID infection. Uh, although even the antibody test is questionable because children produce mm-hmm. different mix of antibodies and clear the antibodies in a shorter period of time. So they may be not caught mm-hmm. when the adult infections are. So even this one question, that's before we get to the school environment and the effects of schools, it turns out to be difficult to answer. And medical and public health research is messy. There's a lot of studies of varying quality, and it can take Uh, a lot of time, even in our current moment where a lot of people are focused on on these particular questions, it can take a lot of time to get definitive answers. Well, and that makes sense, too, because I mean, if you think about uh, the way that COVID testing is done, like not even just for children, but full stop in the United States, Mm -hmm. it's extremely passive, right? I mean, it's mostly for, I mean, unless you live in, let's say, I, I think that some some people listening to this will maybe have like a slightly uh, skewed or different perspective from, let's say, like uh, the, I'd say like the relative ease of getting a COVID test in like New York City 
uh, even though there are long lines there and everything like that, but like, uh, or can be, um, but in somewhere like New York city versus many other, like most other counties, I'd say in the United States where it's not necessarily as like, it's not guaranteed necessarily that your municipality has like guaranteed free COVID testing, uh, and made it like really accessible and available to you, et cetera. And then, uh, what I mean by passive is it's mostly up to people to either say, you know, sometimes will people, people will go and get a COVID test through, uh, you know, you've seen a lot of like people like ER people, for instance, over the Christmas, uh, period, uh, complaining about people having gotten like preliminary, like screening, uh, COVID <laughs> tests, like a couple days before Christmas to see if it was okay to go to a Christmas gathering and then getting COVID right from doing that. But, um, if it's like you have to check for it, like HIV before a sexual encounter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they, but, uh, you know, so sometimes people will do this like preemptive screening or whatever, when they don't have any symptoms with the, for the most part, if you're getting a COVID, uh, test in the United States, I would say that a lot of it is like a lot of it is I have some sort of symptoms and I want to make sure it's like, you know, maybe it's the flu, maybe it's a cold or maybe it is COVID-19. And so -hmm. if you think about that, considering that we do know, like one of the few things that I do think that there is decent uh, literature on is it seems like there is at least a decent prevalence of uh, children who are either like low symptom or asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's already the baseline because testing is so passive, it seems, it seems like it would be, it's a very high bar to say that we have any, uh, any sort of like reasonable like evidence here basically, because for the most part, uh, yeah, if you're, if they're like getting, if they're getting a COVID test, then they probably either like already have symptoms already or there's like some other reason to test them. Right. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not hearing about a lot of public schools that are, you know, sinking tens of thousands of dollars into pooling screening tests. I mean, yes, maybe right. you hear about elite private high schools doing it or, um, you know, high schools that have like a really competitive football program, for example, where they're doing that for athletes in order to, you know, keep the... Uh, public school to college athlete pipeline open as it is the backbone of America. Um, I mean, show, like show me a single study that's screening like every student in like a school district or something or mm-hmm. or in like a large population distributed geographically, uh, you know, not even you wouldn't even have to do it every day, but like very like like with some with some like regularly <laughs> frequent yeah with some regularity screening like every student in a community and then when there are cases doing right. like genetic sequencing to see spread i mean right? the, I mean, the best is, recommendation we've seen is like this like not great paper from the roosevelt institute that was saying like oh uh, you know a really ideal strategy that's prohibitively expensive is to test kids at least once a week and teachers <laughs> twice a week. And even that like would not be enough to sufficiently screen based on the sort of like end to end understanding of how behavior changes when school is open, right? It's right. not just school, it's commuting, it's uh, meal times, it's extracurriculars, it's the change in like social perception that happens from the idea of school being open that changes the kind of socialization that children uh, mm-hmm. do. It changes the assessment of risk that parents have about what these things are. And so it's like, it's more than just like the time in the building itself. It's like, Nobody is accounting for the totality of the situation of having these institutions open while there is like such unmitigated community spread in general going mm-hmm. on outside of the social reproductive process of like sending children to school. Well, and, right. and I mean, maybe this is maybe this goes without saying, but like 
this whole conversation feels like it's still happening in the summer when like COVID was for most people still very like distant or when rates were like spread was spread was happening differently. Like, I mean, just the environment right now, like if you think about how spread is happening, it's like it's almost impossible to know because there's so much fucking community spread just everywhere. Yeah, I think you have like touched on something that kind of explains why like the data are so the data like that we have on schools are so difficult to interpret, um, which is Mm -hmm. this idea of like non-random uh, symptomatic testing <laughs> of students, um, which like, as we know, you know, in the U S like most of, most of our testing is not random, you know, we're not randomly sampling people from the population and testing them either, you know, for active COVID infection or for antibodies. And it has been my impression that schools that are open or are engaging in some kind of like hybrid, you know, like high flex, you know, half virtual, half in-person instruction, have been doing, you know, exactly what you described, which is just testing children, you know, as they become symptomatic, which if children are way more likely to not have symptoms, then the picture of infections and, you know, potentially transmission within schools that is coming from data that is collected via like non-random symptomatic testing is going to be like optimistically low, right? Well, no, that's that's actually that's really important Abby because I've talked to a lot of well-meaning people who I mean many of them parents who have sort of told me over and over again that uh that there's nothing to be worried about, uh that uh, schools are schools are safe that we should, you know, that it's you know, there's all of this evidence out there that shows that spread doesn't occur in schools or that like uh, you know, if, if teachers get infected, it's from somewhere else. And, you know, it, it's these things are often said to me with uh, the a kind of sense of wide authority and tact that uh, seems completely unwarranted by um, the evidence, because it seems like the evidence that we have is very much uh, sort of self-selected and non-random. And it's, you know, really, really disheartening to just hear uh this much sort of denial of the actual level of uncertainty from people who probably should know better. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of the, like it, it rapidly sort of became conventional wisdom. I feel like over the summer that like, Oh yeah. Like kids just don't spread. They don't, they don't get COVID and they don't spread COVID. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. like (laughs) schools were closed in the U S like for most of the spring. Right. And like most of the summer, And like a lot of them have remained closed into the fall, but like, you know, the absence of data on school children or school age children who weren't in school, like became transmuted into this idea that like, oh no, there really is no evidence, (laughs) right? It's like an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence type thing. But anyway, I uh, (laughs) let me give a a little survey on specific evidence about kids, schools, COVID and teachers and other workers in the school building. Um, One is to say that we have indeed seen large-scale outbreaks in schools that are documented in scientific literature. There Mm -hmm. haven't been a lot of them. Mm -hmm. They've been international examples in places like Australia, Quebec and Canada, um, Israel, Chile. Uh, 
The argument is that, okay, these events occurred in areas of high spread and in places where there were not good mitigation measures in place. That's not entirely true. Um, in some of these places, <laughs> there was one in somewhere in the province of Quebec where the kids were wearing masks and were spaced out and many of the kids weren't present. Uh, so you had some level of social distancing and mask wearing. So you also have this camp, summer camp in Georgia, where there was that, that's the major evidence of a large, larger scale outbreak in the U.S., uh, where, where there was large spread, where they were intending to follow CDC recommendations, but ended up, you know, kids are kids, the world is a messy place, ended up not fully um, following the recommendations. So the argument isn't really whether or not outbreaks can occur. Outbreaks can occur. It's to what degree can various measures lower the risk of outbreaks. So that that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is... There are quasi-experimental studies comparing countries that open schools and close schools at particular times to others that have different school opening and closing timelines. There are now two uh, very rigorous studies finding that closing schools is, in fact, one of the most effective ways to lower the COVID reproduction rate in mm -hmm. a country. There's some, the evidence isn't as strong, meaning the study quality isn't as good, but there are a now two or three studies in the U.S. that suggest similarly, particularly among high community spread, particularly in places that were able to close schools earlier in the pandemic, were able to have a bigger effect of, of the closure on, on lowering subsequent spread. So something's going on. Some of it is likely in-building transmission, which can mm -hmm. probably be mitigated, but we don't know to what degree the mitigation works. There are a couple of uh, simulation-based studies that are not yet peer-reviewed that mm -hmm. look at different scenarios for how, how much can spread be lowered. Uh, and uh, the other question is, what happens when you open or close the school outside of the school building, transportation mm -hmm. to the school, but also parents then able to go out in a workplace where they may be exposed, just uh, mm -hmm. increasing the exposure of teachers, other workers, students, and parents in the community. You change a lot for a very large population of roughly 100 million people um, by opening or closing schools. That's Isn't that a stated goal of Biden's plan for schools? Like, isn't it a stated goal of that plan like, to send or to allow parents to return to work? Mm -hmm. that, that was in the, so the Rockefeller Foundation is working with the Biden transition team on, and perhaps we'll go into more detail later, on a plan that would rely almost exclusively on rapid uh, antigen tests uh, <laughs> as as a way to mitigate spread in schools. And their explicit, in the, the, the Rockefeller argument, explicit goal is to send parents back into the workplace because they're unable to because they have to stay home and watch kids. And I, we, we talked a bit about social reproduction earlier. I, <laughs> I see this as uh, it's, it's true that there are largely uh, women who are uh, mothers who are tasked with caring for uh, their children in their home and unable to go into the workplace. And it's created very unequal uh, gender relations, both within the home and within uh, broader economy. Uh, but at the same time, you have 
9 million workers, teachers and other workers in schools who are three quarters women uh, who face a risk of exposure to COVID when, when they have to go back and, and do that same care work that the parents, mostly women, also are doing. Uh, so the, the, the plan seems to be let's get women into the workplace in two ways. One, sending parents from home to the workplace, and two, sending teachers who are mostly doing virtual instruction in a lot of parts of the country into the workplace. And you're just going to increase exposure all around. Um, and, and that's very troubling. And there doesn't seem to be any discussion of this in, in their plan. I think this is the kind of maddening thing to me about the whole thing, because it's like I could see this being a debate. One, again, you know, if we were actually you know, collecting information on this because I refuse to hear, I refuse to seriously, like to take anyone seriously who says that, who says both like, we have to listen to the science and then doesn't seem to be interested in collecting any meaningful data on this, except for, I don't know, self-reported Emily Oster shit that we'll get into later, I'm sure. Yeah. But the, but, uh, it's like on, on top of it, it's like, I could see this being a debate. Yeah. One, if we were, uh, if we were like taking this, uh, seriously and collecting information on it, but then also if it was, if this was somehow happening in a vacuum, like if we were saying collectively, well, basically everything else is going to be closed. Um, Mm -hmm. we're going to, you know, pay people to stay home and, and we're going to, we're going to like set up a huge structure of federal supports, for example, to make it so that most of, uh, that we're like, you know, like bare bones to some degree to, to mitigate spread and to really get through like hunger down and get through this winter and, uh, you know, save as many fucking lives as possible. Um, but that's not the world that we're having this discussion in. Right. I mean, I feel like the game right now is to insist that we, you know, as already saying, we have to believe the science, but Justin, as you've pointed out, the science just isn't there. And so I think the question that needs to be asked is really what is actually going on in this push to reopen schools? Because clearly we're just not in a position where I think we can say either way what role schools play in transmission right now. I think there are judgments that can be made. There are assumptions that can be made based on hypotheses about the risk that's involved, but it's just not something that we have data on at the moment. So I think the real question is like, what exactly is actually going on? What are the actual motivations that are that are driving this? Like, yes, obviously there is tremendous pressure on parents. Um, it's I, I, I get that. And there are few supports to enable people to stay home. We're not paying people to stay home. It's an important uh, child care institution within the United States. However, at the same time, we are basically saying that the risk of, of slowing or halting the, the progress and speed of the economy is greater than potentially just exposing hundreds of thousands of children to a disease we know very little about? I think, I mean, I, I understand why it's so frustrating that like schools are closed and restaurants are open. There are lots of ways to think about this prioritization. And it's like very interesting to me that this debate has taken the shape that it has, given that there are alternatives, right? So <laughs> instead of like lobbying, you know, the, the school board or the government to just reopen schools, it's interesting to me that no one is lobbying the federal government for like more income support for restaurant workers, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, why are we not 
like it's it's interesting to me that all of this energy and i think some of it is think tank mm-hmm. uh big money possibly dark money energy and i think a lot of it is you know genuine like grassroots energy and like true you know frustration among parents but it's interesting that all that energy the shape that it's taking is like oh well you know restaurants are open and it's preposterous that schools aren't so schools just need to be open too instead of saying like okay well how do we need to do that like how many steps back do we need to take to think about how we can do this in a centralized way such that like we can prioritize schools. Right. And like, to me, yeah, it just seems like a very, <laughs> a very easy alternative to think about is like, Oh, right. Like massive federal relief, <laughs> you know, to workers in <laughs> right. non-essential sectors. So all of that shit can stay closed, you know, and like relief to like, you know, small business, like, business owners and whatever. Um, but it's, it's interesting that instead of like going that direction of like, okay, well, let's like make everything safer so that we can try to have schools open more safely. It's like, okay, well, the restaurants are open the bars are open. So like the schools need to be too. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, I don't agree with that, but it's hard to argue with that. Right? <laughs> well, like, I mean, from a, from a very practical perspective, when everyone uh, is being asked to both work and also take on a child care mm-hmm. role that was being provided by the state, um, mm-hmm. and there's not any sort of compensation for that, like, I guess it, yep. under, it, it makes some sense to me that the peculiar American idea of equality is just making things worse for everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but it also, it occurs to me that there's a, there's something I want to just broach because you're both epidemiologists um, and that's the sort of field that you uh, encounter most directly. But it's very curious to me that so much of this debate is being guided by economists and funded by nonprofits that explicitly have worked to <laughs> undermine the role of public education yeah. um, in uh, or, or, you know, to put it generously in their terms to disrupt, uh, <laughs> the public <laughs> education sector and school and, choice people. And, and yeah. I don't mean this to be, this is not, I would emphasize an ad hominem. Uh, the, the problem with this work is that it's being driven purely by self-selection, uh, into a national data set. So not at all a random sample of, uh, of schools and is being pumped out in this very high level way in, in, in a way that does not fundamentally address the core political economy problems at the heart of this, which is that we ask schools to do the caregiving function. We're not mm-hmm. actually helping workers at all. Like it doesn't cut into any of those debates, nor does it actually address the question of what resources schools would need to hypothetically open <laughs> safely or to adhere to CDC guidelines or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's just a question of like, it it seems to be oriented around proving that there's not many risks. And I, I wondered if you could just talk about like, what is the evidence that is out there that seems to be driving this? And like, where does it come from? And, and what do you think is going on with that? So over the summer, um, a group of funders in collaboration with a economist from Brown University who's well known for... Uh, evidence-based child rearing. Um, they put they put together something called the I may not have the name exactly right. The School COVID National Dashboard. National COVID nineteen um, School Response Dashboard. There, there you go. Just rolls there. off the tongue. I feel like them um, apples. Yeah. 
So yeah, the the idea was that school districts, eventually states, would opt in or provide publicly, um, and and they would use it, data on testing of staff, faculty, students. And this website would track the different factors that were associated with higher or lower levels of COVID, but more specifically, just be able to get rates of what percentage is uh, of the school population is testing positive uh, and different parts of the school population. Uh, we've kind of touched on the limitations of that model in terms of pa- passive surveillance earlier in the conversation, but to make it very clear, we're not sure what fraction of COVID infections in the U.S. result in a test. Most people are not getting tested. I was looking at mm-hmm. one study that said for every three COVID infections could just be one of them that ends up as a confirmed case in the U.S. That's the lower bound. Mm. The upper bound is for every 20 (laughs) COVID infections, just one of them ends up uh, as a confirmed positive test. Jesus Christ. And there are are all sorts. So I I think about this, like I think about so-called crime data, for instance, where you have uh, the process of policing inflates crime figures in neighborhoods that are over-policed because an interaction mm-hmm. with police is more likely to produce something we call a crime in a data set. So just like criminal justice data uh, is affected by social processes, so is this confirmed case data in general. So you see women outnumbering men in the COVID data, uh, not because they're more likely to be infected necessarily, but because they're more likely to use healthcare. You see older people outnumbering younger people because older people are more likely to have symptoms. So they're going to go and and get tested. And younger people have mild or no symptoms, so they're not. And then you see the same testing rates in neighborhoods, whether they're rich or poor, majority people of color, majority white. It's very uh, similar testing rates. But you have much higher infection rates in working class communities and communities of color. So you have those communities severely under testing. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the scenario. Uh, that, that's sort of the social processes that, that result in a particular kind of testing data, particular kind of picture of who's getting infected and how and where. Uh, so then when it comes to schools, you have to wonder who's getting tested and who's not. Um, how many of these tests are being reported? There's articles about a so-called mom code where parents don't want to report their child's positive tests to the school because that would result in a quarantine. Right. So they, they figure it's better not to. Uh, so you have, you have pretty skewed testing data. Um, but the thing is, so, so, so that's, the, that's the data that, get, that feeds into the, the dashboard. Um, Even that said, their own data, particularly when you look at states with better reporting, shows that teachers have higher uh, confirmed case rates than the counties that they live in. And they they kind of, in in a related project, Path to Zero, they kind of address that and they say it's troubling and they they move on. (laughs) (laughs) But but to, to be able to say, I think there's, I think people in the public believe that lots of data is better than small amounts of high quality data. But we really, we, <laughs> yeah. It would be nice to have 
uh, thorough outbreak detection and use data from that. But in a lot of states, they're barely contact tracing anyone or have even mm-hmm. given up. Uh, mm-hmm. In states where they are contact tracing, they're not doing thorough outbreak investigations. And I'm, I'm looking right now, I went, you can get some of this data online. I went to the Michigan Department of Education website and I found a list of uh, K-12 schools. I'm looking specifically at the ones that have five cases or more. And these are cases where they've determined that it happened in the school. Um, there's 66 K-12 schools in Michigan alone, just one state I happen to go to, that have epidemiologically linked within the schools COVID outbreaks of five or more. And, and these aren't showing up in scientific literature necessarily. I go to the news to try to see these schools and what happened. They don't offer a lot of details. It's not clear that the uh, health, local health departments are doing a thorough job determining just how wide the spread went and how it happened, whether it was really in the school or really not. Um, so we're kind of flying uh, you know, with our eyes closed and we really can't say what's going on in, in the absence of good surveillance data. Even in New York City, where they are doing supposedly random testing uh, of something like 10 or 20% of their school population monthly, it's being described in media that they're skipping over certain schools that may have higher rates and they're not being transparent about their sampling procedures. And I try Mm -hmm. to get the data. It's very, you can't really, it's all there. You can't really download it and you can't get past data, but we have seen the, the positivity rate go up uh, as the community rates have gone up. Like you would obviously assume because <laughs> well, well, we live ar- in a society. <laughs> the, the argument there, the argument there that they're making the, the sort of advocates of reopening at any cost is that mm-hmm. infection rates in school just in, reflect infection rates in the community, but don't mm-hmm. drive infection rates in the community. That's not how infectious diseases work. That's nonsense. Uh, it, <laughs> infectious diseases don't just reflect, they also transmit. And all of these cases, whether or not they're at the same rate as, as a community, all of these cases can go on and infect more people, whether it's in the right. school, whether it's somewhere else. Yeah. And what do they mean by reflect? Like not- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, is the, what does the verb reflect their mean? Uh, can you like, what do they think it, just, it means? It just means that we can't admit that schools are locations where transmission can occur, right? Like <laughs> an epidemic is not like a directional process that like radiates away from right. sites of like high, you know, social and economic value. Like <laughs> it makes no se- like reflecting. I don't know. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking that goes into this where people think that schools are again, like high value, you know, important, necessary settings. And they're, as Justin has said, like they're virtuous settings, right? And so I think there's like a lot of wishful thinking that the rules that apply to viral transmission outside of school don't apply within the school setting because, you know, precautions are being taken or whatever. But I think that there's a lot of motivated reasoning that goes into that formulation that like, oh, no, no, no. Like any transmission that we're seeing in schools is just reflecting community transmission. It's like, well, no shit. Like schools are part of the community, right? Like people that (laughs) Mm -hmm. attend and work in schools are like members of the community where the school is situated. So to me, that makes no sense. Well, but I mean, this is kind of my, my, this would be like an important uh, question in in general for me though. Like when people say stuff like, cause you hear, you do hear this all the time. Like, 
uh, oh, well, you know, kids can get it and like some teachers are getting it in schools, but for the or, or and some teachers are getting it. But for the most part, like kids are not getting it in school. We've you know, we've mentioned this before, uh, but like when I mean, when people when when people like are saying this, are they citing stuff like this? uh like Emily Oster dashboard, which is again, you know, entirely from self-reported data and then, and thus like skews, uh, further towards, uh, you know, for example, like more, uh, like more advantaged or whatever, like economically advantaged, uh, like schools that are able to do more mitigation practices, uh, and, and things like that. So like, doesn't really represent the data very well. I mean, I'm just, I guess I just mean like when, when people say like, you're not that when people say that like you're not uh that you're not seeing kids getting infected in school just in the greater community like literally what what the fuck are they talking about i think that <laughs> Does you anyone can't know? see something that i think this gets to a lot of what justin has been saying right about how like the social processes by which these like covid data come into being mm-hmm. right like i don't think that people are usually citing anything when they say that. <laughs> like, I think that like all these, all the stuff that Justin has been describing, like makes it very, very difficult to actually assert one way or the other, like whether, you know, quote unquote, kids are getting it in schools or anything like that. Right. Like we're not really looking right. We're not really doing, you know, like random asymptomatic uh, testing of school children. We're not really doing you know, outbreak investigations, you know, like Justin said, like uh, a lot of states have sort of given up on contact tracing and compliance, you know, quote unquote, compliance with contact tracing is often, you know, kind of incomplete. And so I, you know, like I, I don't feel confident saying like, oh yeah, it's definitely the case that like all these kids are definitely getting it in school. But by the same token, I don't think that (laughs) people who are saying, you know, definitively that students and teachers in any particular instance, didn't pick it up in school, I don't think that they really have a leg to stand on either. Like, it's just very, I think it's just very hard to tell from that, from the data that are available. It's Um, so hypocritical to, in you know, on one hand, be insisting, you know, keeping schools open is the only way to fight income inequality, that there's going to be this lost generation of children that, you know, think of all the poor kids, think of all the children of color that are left behind. And, you know, like, uh, at the same time, you're basically saying, okay, like, this is so important that we should do absolutely nothing to control spread. We should (laughs) keep school, like, if we're going to keep restaurants open, we got to keep schools open. And if that's really your point, if schools are really so important, it should, you should be arguing the opposite, that to keep schools open, you have to close other things. Well, and that's what's so baffling about the path to zero document, right, is like, you know, this, this whole idea of like, oh, well, schools just uh, reflect, you know, community transmission. So if community transmission is high, like obviously we'll see, you know, high transmission in schools, but then the path to zero document essentially argues for abandoning the entire enterprise of like benchmarking, you know, the steps of reopening for Mm -hmm. in-person instruction to the level of community spread. So yeah, it makes me feel like something else. It just makes me feel like the, the reasoning is kind of motivated, right? Like that these, groups have like a real interest in schools being open for in-person instruction that like only tangentially has to do with (laughs) the data that are available because I don't think the data paint 
a very clear picture, but to the extent that they do, the data sort of militate in favor of uh, a more cautious approach. Right. And I mean, Abby, in your in your piece on Medium, where you sort of wrote about a lot of the let's say like context for how like who's making these arguments you talked about how great an opportunity this is for uh disaster capitalism how great an opportunity this is for people who are seeking to undermine the power of maybe teachers unions um i wonder if you could talk about that for a second so i did some kind of looking around i mean all this stuff is publicly available but it's kind of hard to track down like definitively like where this money is coming from and where it's going. So the National COVID-19 School Response Dashboard receives <laughs> <The name>. funding <laughs> support from three foundations. Uh, this is the Templeton Foundation, the Arnold Foundation, and the Walt Foundation, which all have a pretty long track record of supporting initiatives to essentially privatize uh, public education in the U.S. Um, so they have a track record of donating to sort of free market, uh, you might say, education reform, <laughs> like nonprofits and initiatives and things like that. And so I think it's maybe not incidental that these foundations having this like stated objective, right, of supporting efforts to privatize public education in the United States. I think it's maybe not incidental and maybe not surprising that they have found this dashboard to be like a useful tool because as we've discussed, you know, the, the data that are reported on the dashboard are kind of highly selected. And um, there's a lot of reason to suspect uh, that maybe these data are painting uh, a picture of, you know, transmission and contagion in schools that is uh, a little more optimistic than, you know, maybe is truly the case. Yeah, I don't think it's some like grand conspiracy. I don't think that like John Arnold is sitting in a, in a dark, <laughs> smoky room somewhere like on well, He X did Files. cause COVID, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that these like foundations are, you know, sitting and, and plotting to undermine uh, public education using COVID. I do think that like every crisis presents opportunities opportunities politically, right? And totally. as we've said from the very beginning, it's very important to to watch how the crisis of COVID is used because every crisis demands social intervention or, or solutions, right? In theory, in a society, the goal of a community is to like meet crises together and mitigate them. And I, I think what we're seeing is this sort of co-optation of like the idea of children's safety, the idea of the importance of education, the idea that education, um, it's kind of a myth, I think, at this point, that education somehow like is uh, responsible for socioeconomic uh, gains later in life. And in a lot of ways, this sort of like narrative of like, oh, we've got to make sure that the kids can learn because if the kids don't learn, then they can't learn to code, then they can't rise above themselves, <laughs> they can't pull themselves yeah. up by their bootstraps and get into Harvard or whatever. And that just And then ignores- we have to overpolice them. Right. And that just ignores like all of the obvious facts of income inequality and uh <laughs> that could be yeah. addressed in order to help children through this crisis as well as adults. And instead of trying to address those, instead of thinking about these big questions, it's sort of this drumbeat of 
we've just got to go back to the status quo at all costs and as quickly as possible because we don't know anything better or we're not willing to offer people anything better. And this crisis is showing need so much that we need to sort of come together and meet this crisis. But I think the problem is, is that the crisis that people are experiencing, the crisis that parents are experiencing is a different crisis than the one that um, a lot of policymakers and people making these recommendations are actually tasked with addressing. You know, like, we're we're talking about the crisis in education and childcare and and what happens to children. I think a lot of the people who are making recommendations about mm-hmm. this are talking about the crisis that this presents to capitalism, the crisis that this presents to the economy, not to the actual health lives of uh, of individuals in general. You know what yeah, I mean? That's a really really yeah. good point, B. It's I feel like you're one can read a lot about what you think the world should be like from what you think during this. The, the last few months has to remain in place and what we allow to change. <laughs> and like it apparently has to remain in like the, the implicit assumption of this, you know, uh, path to zero is that like it has to be the case that parents return to work. It has to be the case that parents can't be given any sort of uh, support to like stay home and actually you know, do the work of of helping their children uh, learn virtually. Like an implicit assumption is that mm-hmm. that aspect of our economy has to remain frozen in place. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's been really interesting. Like <laughs> maybe like echoing Artie here because like I feel like this is just like the pure ideology of <laughs> the American state. <laughs> but like it's been really interesting to watch people right who didn't give like two shits about you know, class or racial equity in education (laughs) prior to July of 2020, right? Like now being, you know, the most vocal crusaders for like these poor (laughs) children who are being, you know, quote unquote, left behind. And I don't want to, you know, and who still don't, they still don't care about it except to get them back into the school that was already like falling apart and under maintained and understaffed, et cetera. Once the child is in the school, it's on them to raise themselves up above their station in life. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's on them to choose behaviors that will minimize their chances (laughs) of being exposed to COVID. But like there was a, a person who responded to my, uh, medium piece who like didn't like it, which I mean is fine. That's okay. But It was really striking because uh, one of the things they said was, you know, well, schools are, you know, our number one. This is this is what I think is like the the pure ideology. But they were like schools are the number one tool that we have to address disparities of race and class. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like so many levels of ideology. Right. In a way, (laughs) in a way, that person is correct, but not in the way that they mean, because, (laughs) yeah. They kind of are the number one tool for reinforcing existing right. class and social boundaries and borders and, and you know, well, but that's policing just because, children. That's just because all the other tools are behind, like, the wire cage with the lock and you have to go get the guy to get the spray paint and the other tools. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just very, very interesting because this has been really taken up and a lot of the people who advance arguments like this for why, you know, like school needs to be open immediately, like from the lens of equity. Um, it's, it's very interesting what their actual understanding of like the function of school in American society is. And I, you know, I think it's kind of a problem for these folks that are 
public schools today are like more racially segregated than they were before the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Like that on its face, it is like not accurate to argue that schools, you know, are our number one key tool to remedy Mm -hmm. inequality. And it's just, it's, it's, um, it's just been frustrating to watch people who have clearly no investment whatsoever in like education, like equity and education, taking that up um, and trying to use it as like a shield, essentially. Well, it, well, and, and on top of that, no one's saying like literally no one is saying don't have any form of education. Like it, I, I, <laughs> like it, it also ignores. I mean, we, we have again, we've touched on this before, but it's not it's not merely just oh, like, you know, pay parents to stay home to like facilitate students like pay for like do a you know it's been some of the some of the things only seem like impossible uh like mitigation factors if you're still thinking in a context from like march where it's like oh well it's going to be a couple weeks of like quote-unquote lockdown and then everything's gonna be fine we're gonna have (laughs) defeated the virus or whatever like it's been months at this point you could have very easily Pay, mm-hmm. like paid people to stay home um and to like you know literally you know what, draw draw them out of poverty like pay like pay for <laughs> a uh like a huge broadband expansion get fucking laptops for everyone i was just yeah, gonna say to you know even make them american-made laptops or something if you're really goddamn jingoistic like, foundation throw some money at that for a change yeah yeah nice. <laughs> think about what do disruptors what do quote-unquote education disruptors fucking love buying everybody a goddamn laptop like right (laughs) and you have a you have a nice secondary effect of buying everyone a goddamn laptop which is like every child in the united states can get really fucking good at genshin impact or whatever (laughs) or among us or something and then you know you've got you've got like a you've 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 got a whole industry of esports players uh, in the future you know i know genshin impact is an esports game please lay off me gamers but you know what i mean it's telling that it's telling that we're like the people who are being invoked are the most needy vulnerable students right it's like oh we've got to reopen school because all of the poor children and all the special needs children and all those people who you know have these really complex needs and they get nutrition from school and it just it's like it reminds me so much of these arguments that you saw you know (laughs) you've seen rather for decades now that are all about the individuation of risk that are all about like removing responsibility from the community, deferring that responsibility onto some other institution, and then defunding the institution that's responsible (laughs) for the support at the end of the day. And what we have is like this uh, moment where the circumstance is forcing us to rethink a lot of the uh, structures and institutions that that provide these services, right? That provide access to the internet, that provide education, that provide... um, a uh, child care that provide food for, for people who can't afford food themselves. And in so many ways, I see like the public school reopening debate as this sort of death rattle of like welfare reform, just sort of reaching out of the grave, trying as hard as it possibly can to say, no, no, I know that we used to have a lot of these things funded for both in the community and in school, but uh, we're going to stick with the in-school austere option that we've spent 40 years, 50 years rolling back to, and we're really not interested in uh, covering that ground again and providing some of these services to people directly. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's absolutely uh, malpractice 
I think. And one piece that's usually absent from these conversations around concerns about making racial gaps in education achievement bigger is the racial gaps in ability to mitigate COVID spread in school and the racial gaps in the consequences of uh, school-related infections harming students or in particularly families. Segregated schools that are underfunded because they, you know, as a result of racism, uh, don't have good ventilation systems. They, uh, I'm hearing from people in in Providence schools in Rhode Island that they can't afford enough staff for kids to have lunch in their classrooms. So they have to have Mm -hmm. lunch without masks, of course, in a cafeteria. Then there's more exposure in the communities in general. So they're more likely to bring it to school. They're more likely to live in a multi-generational household where someone's higher yeah. risk at home. And it all it all compounds. And this just doesn't seem to be uh, on the radar um, uh, of these people. I also I also want to go back to unions for a second and what this uh, campaign that's funded by anti-union groups uh, may be about. And I'm I'm hearing both I'm reading and I'm talking to um people in, in teachers unions and education worker, school building worker unions. Um, these arguments from Emily Oster and from Path Zero, they're being used by certain parents and by yep. administrations to argue for, uh, in negotiations with unions, to argue for fewer precautions. So one mm. thing they're oh saying is, we don't want to put a threshold on community spread that would result in closure. And another thing they're, they're using it to argue about is um, reducing social distancing to three feet rather than six feet so they could put more kids in the class because there's not enough teachers otherwise. Um, Jesus Christ. Because six feet isn't already arbitrary and pulled out of our ass. Paradoxically, this Path to Zero document says community spread doesn't matter. Um, but if community spread is above a certain level, then older students should have six feet. Otherwise, they can have three feet, uh, which just seems a little inconsistent. Um, I love to, I, I fucking love science. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you have Emily Oster personally intervening uh, in the Chicago Teacher Union negotiations with the uh, Chicago Public Schools Administration participating in events with the superintendent of Chicago Public Schools, where they're arguing that, with, with no union representatives present, where they're arguing that schools My are very God. safe, um, the union's being unreasonable uh, d- during those <laughs> events. Uh, so it's just, oh, and, and the most recent thing I've seen from Oster is uh, casting doubt on what she thinks of as aggressive quarantine policies in schools. So if someone tests positive, maybe you can just keep the class going rather than um, bring bring them back home to virtual instruction. So it's so much simpler to just fucking fund them than to do this stuff. It's absolutely wild to me. Like, well, no, it's it's no, but it's just it's funny that like this is I mean, obviously, this is where we're going to be at, because like the option to fund them is the antithesis of you know oster's uh like seeming political project here so like obviously you have to like make a think tank to (laughs) to, to, like but but that's the entire thing about all of these uh like all the same like the 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 flip side of 
the the more cloying version of the uh you know i listen to science thing if you're a, if you're a politician or whatever or just like you know i believe in science etc like the more cloying version of that is like the keep your politics like keep your politics out of my science thing <laughs> yeah. which is like Politics uh, in my science? <laughs> the only politics is allowed in my science or mine. How dare you? Like, right, exactly. But it's like, right. I mean, but that's the, you, you don't have to read fucking Bruno Latour to understand that like <laughs> science is politically constructed, right? Or socially constructed. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like just because, I mean, I think a lot of these people, obviously, you know, there are very clear reasons, uh, like largely, uh, honestly, I think easily reducible to like, uh, social and class, uh, economic and economic reasons, uh, for like why, you know, the liberal, uh, like neoliberal system works pretty well for, for a lot of them who are like, you know, clinician researchers or something people who end up getting like tasked to, to talk about this or who are the type of person who says like, keep your politics out of my science, et cetera, uh, because they can, it's like they they can imagine that because we don't live in a world where we're like burning fucking like Giordano Bruno at the stake for like bleeding and <laughs> Copernicanism or something uh, like just because we don't live in that world anymore that like science is science and politics have become separated like uh, they, they heard about the separation of church and state or something and they're like cool we're good now science is like this uh, yeah this rugged discipline with with no that has no that is not beholden to any social constructs at all right yeah right. Keep, keep your uh, politics out of my science and of course i am forced to accept money from JetBlue to do a study about airplane <laughs> transmission because that is the political economy of science well Arby. and of course the limits of the bounds of my science can integrate in no in no way shape or form uh economic arguments uh arguments about like uh like uh, systemic racism things right. like that it, and it's, also it's, it's if you just, accept it's just pure... under ten thousand dollars you scientifically can't be biased it's right. only if you accept <laughs> more true. than ten thousand dollars uh, yeah the the, the checkers theory of uh scientific <laughs> yeah it's um it's called like the side of the line is my side and if you cross over then you're in my country yeah, exactly. you know sure. <laughs> It's the same fucking fantasy. Borders are fake, people. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. um. <laughs> but that is that is an important I mean, I think the the very unfortunate thing is when these these issues get framed as if they were, in fact, a a purely empirical debate or a debate about where the evidence lies. Because I think one thing that that Abby, you you and both uh, you and Justin have, have like pointed out is like, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. And then the question is, okay. How do you act under conditions of uncertainty and like what principles ought to guide your actions? And, and it's like, well, sorry to say or, you know, happy to say or just like it's obvious that <laughs> it's political and moral judgments. It's judgments <laughs> about what exactly we want to do and like what kind of world we want to live in. And it's so funny to me or, you know, and and remarkably similar to my own experience that like middle-class <laughs> professional people would just love these issues to not be on the table. And, <laughs> you know, they would just love to like be able to sideline these issues, delegate it to some sort of machine um, with a, you know, human face that spits out some answer. That's like, Oh yeah, if we just do this, everything will be fine. But uh, it's, it's very frustrating to me that like, this is what happens when all of the potential things you could do are left off the table. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also when you like sort of see these periods of of such little action. Right. And you just like we're, we're watching these problems of community spread be exacerbated in real time because 
governors are not closing things because everything is arbitrary, right? So the the problem I feel like that's happening also is is we're seeing all these things sort of not be addressed from the federal or state level. Um, people are not getting support. And so I think there is this sort of, I think you're right, Phil, there is this sort of like real strong desire to like fix it or push it under the rug, which really reminds me of like, and this is probably just because I'm rereading um, Golden Gulag. <laughs> yeah, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. But it really reminds me of like the Prop 13 situation where you just had mm-hmm. like middle class white people being like, you know what, I really don't want to think about this anymore. Let me try and um, intervene my way out. And you're seeing this this sort of like corollary where um, people who are primarily focused on the economics of health, like Emily Oster, are stepping in to try and alleviate that in the same harmful way that Prop 13 did nothing to mm-hmm. actually improve the material conditions for people in California. Well, what I'm seeing, um, I, I'm seeing the school, uh, thinking along those lines, the, the school aspect of COVID as just a subset of the larger national handling of COVID, yeah. which what happened mm-hmm. was the, the CARES Act, the initial CARES Act was very generous by U.S. standards uh, in terms of providing <laughs> social welfare support, uh, three quarters, by one estimate, three quarters of unemployed workers were earning more from the UI supplement than they had on the job, which created a lot of bargaining power um, to choose whether or not to return to work, to whether or not to return under unsafe conditions. Uh, but I, I think the size of the first CARES Act was. Uh, due to a lot of uncertainty about who would be affected, both economically and by COVID. And it gradually became clear that the people being most affected uh, are not the people who typically matter to, to the U.S. political system. Yeah. Uh, a lot. There's a lot of people who are doing well economically right now. The top third paying jobs are fully recovered Combined U.S. net worth is the highest in its history. The stock market's up. The real estate industry's up. It's not just the billionaires who are headed. It's a lot mm-hmm. of people. And, and a lot of people are not getting sick. And a lot of people are not getting severely sick. And that allowed for a pretty anemic uh, response after the first CARES Act. That, that made it so that we didn't have another bill. Until, I think Trump may have just signed the second round mm-hmm. of, of yeah, funding. He did. Last yeah, night, last yeah. night. The money ran out long ago, uh, and and this one's not nearly big enough. Um, so it, it really raised the cost for governors and mayors to make decisions around closures. And what they did instead of closing things was do what we do with all sorts of social problems, including mm-hmm. health problems, which is to say, this is a problem of personal behavior. Yeah. Uh, exactly. COVID mostly spreads at social gatherings. And the corollary, corollary to that, COVID doesn't really spread in businesses and institutions. <laughs> and, uh, and I've been, I have a Twitter thread going where I'm collecting uh, mostly statements from governors to, to this effect. And you see most governors making these statements, which is not borne out even by the skewed epidemiologic contact tracing evidence that they have. Um, so so my, my former advisor, um, Nancy Krieger, has written about um, theory and epidemiology, in particular the rise of what she calls 
biomedical theory and lifestyle theory and how we try to individualize public health problems and make it about individual personal choice absence, uh, how environment leads people to be able to make certain choices, and also how healthcare and pharmaceutical interventions targeted at individuals come to be the way we solve these problems. So that's what we're going to see increasingly with vaccine availability uh, mm-hmm. and what we're seeing increasingly with um telling people that it's their careless behavior rather than, uh, you know, the businesses that are open and the failure to provide supports for people to isolate from the rest of their households, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I see this going in a really bad direction if it turns out the vaccine can't prevent transmission, where you just have Mm -hmm. giving up beyond, beyond the degree we've already given up. Um, and you can vaccinate teachers and send them back, uh, but the kids aren't going to be vaccinated and the parents are going to be vaccinated. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what's going to happen? I, I really don't know. Yeah, yeah that's my this greatest like, fear. This is like, I'm obsessed with the mall Santa thing. <laughs> I just listened to your like yes. holiday episode, but this is like, I think, I think it was Artie was talking about some doctor that like wrote into some newspaper and was like, oh yeah, like. Santa's Santa can't get COVID. He's fine. Like two of them. Oh, that was Anthony Fauci. Yeah, that was Anthony Fauci. Who then, who then, who then, yeah, Anthony Fauci, who first said, oh, Santa has innate immunity. And then about a month later, uh, there was that whole, yeah, said he like, yeah, I went up to the North Pole and I uh, vaccinated (laughs) Santa because everyone knows Santa's an American. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Um, I thought I thought it was like some other doctor. So I don't know. Correct me. But it was like, oh, Santa's fine. You know, like there were two infections reported among the elves, but they hadn't (laughs) been wearing their masks properly. And like Uh ever since then, like math compliance has been really good in the workshop. Hey, if you're going to sell the individuation of risk, you got to start early. Yeah. That's how that's how just depressing that shit actually is. Yeah, yeah. I mean the like the individuation of risk and like the shunting of like all COVID nineteen you know protocol onto like individuals choosing you know responsible behaviors is visible everywhere you look. <laughs> yeah. Right, and I think the implications of what that is going to mean um, in the scenario that Justin described, which is really like kind of my biggest worry for the next couple of years is what does that what does that social process mean applied to a scenario where you have unequal vaccine distribution mm-hmm. and the vaccine does not protect from asymptomatic infection right so if if you have essentially this mechanism which protects some people who can access the vaccine which is obviously like predicated by socioeconomic class and and race boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. And that not only protects the people who have access to it greater than the rest of the population, but it also in some sense facilitates the easier silent spread of a very deadly virus that's already disproportionately impacting this population that, again, is going to be largely left out of the vaccines. And I think that's why you see from like the recommendation guidelines of like people trying to move uh, essential workers into the category of of people who would get early access and making ex- essential workers mean everything from bank employees to like supermarket employees is this desire to like preemptively uh, deal with a situation that I think no one is admitting is where we're going. And this is the same thing with the herd immunity strategy where it's like, yeah, we're already pursuing herd immunity 
right? Mm -hmm. Like no one is maybe saying it out loud. Maybe they're saying it implicitly, but like functionally what we are doing is pursuing a herd immunity strategy. And functionally what we're doing right now also is sort of preemptively trying to create systems that sort of accept the uh, further asymptomatic spread of COVID as a reality, you know, as this inevitable endemic situation that we're just going to be working with. One thing I think, one misperception I think a lot of people have is that they view um, they view the failure of the U.S. response to COVID uh, in terms of like what the American people want and will accept um, yeah. mm-hmm. on anti-maskers, on people who reject science, and th- those people all exist. Uh, but when you look at polling data, the vast majority of people in the U.S. Uh, th- by a two-to-one ratio support closing non-essential businesses to stop COVID. So you don't see that happening. Um, You have 70 plus percent saying that they wear masks whenever they leave their household and very few refuse to wear masks. You have a vast majority of people substantially lowering, if not uh, ending completely, their social contacts with people outside of the household when when they're able to do that. And then you have 70% who are saying that they can and will social distance for six months or until the vaccine uh, is is available to them. So it's not, it's not the people who are rejecting an adequate COVID response. It's not something that's part of the American character. It is about power and capitalism. And that's why we're seeing similar patterns emerge in uh, other countries with similar political economic structures as the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think that the like uh, Abby, for example, in the in the piece um, that you wrote about this, I think it was a really I think that your um, sort of allusion to uh, the situation around Katrina and disaster capitalism was really apt mm-hmm. because fundamentally it's, I mean, I think I feel like so much of what we've been talking around here, but also just kind of everything that we've been, I mean, in some ways like this, the, not just uh, this year, but like this show in general, so much of what we uh, try to do is just talk about how specifically, I think often through the lens of like, whether it's uh, like individual health or public health or whatever uh, and health finance, like how, uh, how like glaringly obvious so many of the contradictions of capitalism are, but how clearly like, you know, and over the last year, I think we've been focused uh, very specifically uh, like a lot on how this particular crisis is such a clear manifestation. And unlike something like with uh, Katrina, which is at least to, to a, to a certain degree, geographically localized. Yeah. It's acute in some sense. Uh, you know, this is uh, if, we're, if we're talking about this on the level of like the United States, just as a, as a, a singular entity, for example, um, even if we're just like lim- limiting it to that in terms of like a sort of uh, national crisis, because it's been so particularly like g- gruesome here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, this is one of these things where not only do we have to sort of like not only now, but sort of all along the conversation that we should have been having as like a, a publicly as a, as a country is like how clearly this crisis shows pretty much every level of not just like the crisis of capitalism, but the fundamental uh, corruptness and barrenness of the neoliberal project uh, and how so many of those things like should just be completely stripped away. I mean, it's not, you know, like the, the record uh, profits of uh, health insurance companies, uh, for example, during the period of months where, uh, people were avoiding the doctor for for perfectly logical 
reasons, basically because they were worried that in a healthcare setting they would be more likely to catch COVID, maybe mm-hmm. as as precautions were being put in place and things like that. Uh, so you know, like the the record uh, like health insurance profits uh, this year should be like a very clear public indication that something is very wrong in the political economy of health and we needed a very minimum like Medicare for all. Um, the whole conversation around $600 checks versus mm-hmm. $2,000 checks and trucking Donald Trump of all people weighing in for all for all that people have made, I think, a little bit too much of that. There's still like Trump of all people like weighing in on that and saying like, oh, we need $2,000 checks. Like this should be a very clear indication that, you know, again, um, and I said this on Twitter, but that like fucking like, poverty is a choice, that economic immiseration is a choice. It is a deliberate public policy decision that is made mm-hmm. um, to, to to very specifically uh, distribute along the lines of like power and class and, and gender and race, uh, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera, what have you, like all of the spoils of our settler colonial empire. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I, I guess I, wor- what worries me in particular thing and what, what, what infuriates me to no end about the, the schools thing is it's like, this is one situation where I, I think, I think to some degree, like you'll, you'll see like, um, even like Pelosi, right, or whatever, you'll see you'll see like really blue dog Democrat liberals say mm-hmm. stuff like, we do need two thousand dollar checks. Just one of them. We mm-hmm. can't we're not gonna go crazy here or whatever. <laughs> like uh we we need you know, we we need like uh we do need a two thousand dollar like check to people or something, but on the schools front, it's just like it's complete uh oh no, no, the 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 potential consequences of this or or like the the fact that there might be something something rotten in the political economy here that's all a mirage no 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 we need to reopen the schools mm-hmm. you know like the the depths of the delusion here mm-hmm. i think are yeah. are like and and the importance of i think shattering that for the purpose of being able to even get to this this criticism of like the contradictions of capital that are obvious in the crisis mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. right and, um, and for sure we're going to see in the next few months as we've already seen this profusion of stories about how um you know virtual learning is failing and the you know the mm-hmm. the sort of generation left behind it's like no, no doubt there's a lot of problems with with virtual learning and it's yeah uh not a great way for students to uh uh consume information or like integrate new forms of knowledge but it, to say that that's like oh the problem then is to you know to go back to uh school at all costs like that like it's it's that uh implication of those stories that makes them so unreadable it's not that like there aren't real problems there it's that of (laughs) course the conclusion that people are going to draw from this uh you know under the current rubric is that uh that there's only one option here and it's one that's inevitably going to you know perpetuate the spread of a a virus and and more death Mm -hmm. and the option that is kind of the most brutal and the most likely to reproduce harm too. You know, there mm-hmm. it's not like we're out of choices. It's just that we refuse to expand our political imagination into the realm where these these issues which we can identify are even addressed. You know, it it uh, this kind of ties back into that point that you made Justin about school reopening just sort of being one of these smaller indications of just like the larger struggle over the COVID crisis, which in a lot of ways is playing out over and over again of this sort of reconciling between like acute versus long-term crisis. And we're sort of seeing this in in everything from, uh, you know, like the 
issues with coding, like patients are being sent home from the hospital on oxygen, but because there's only an acute code for COVID, um, oh, insurance companies are denying home supplemental oxygen because they're saying COVID's not a chronic oh. condition, but there is not a <laughs> chronic <laughs> COVID code yet. Right. So there's these, there are all these contradictions or all these like sort of catch 22s little cycles you can get like off into, which is you've got this sort of perpetual cycle of reopen the schools, reopen the businesses, keep people at work. You've got the, these, just these struggles over and over again between something that people are imagining as acute and mm -hmm. the, the sort of struggle to try and reinforce an acute nature of something that's just not acute. Like COVID <laughs> is not going to be over in two weeks. I'm sorry. It's or not two months that's not or how we'll, two years. <laughs> we don't know. And it definitely won't be over soon if we keep doing this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the longer that the sort of denial of the long term nature of this crisis is enabled, like the worse things are just going to yeah. get. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm seeing like a parallel between what you were just saying and the kind of like value orientation of like, the scientific field of public health. And I'm not sure if this totally makes sense, but there's like a tendency in the field of epidemiology to treat the tools and like the methodologies that we use to measure reality as the actual contours of reality itself. Mm -hmm. Does that make Does that make sense? Totally. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Um, oh, totally, I, for sure. Yeah, I feel like a lot of what's going on is like there's an inability to or there's like a difficulty seeing the social processes and the social and political interests that actually shape the very data that we generate to like characterize, you know, either like acute or long term crises, you know, for mm -hmm. example, like COVID. Um, mm -hmm. As a consequence, I think like a lot of confusion results from that because people it's, maybe I'm just like coming up with fancier ways of saying that like people think that data are like objective figures and they're not because <laughs> they're like the end products of like pretty complex social processes that like, you know, interests with different kinds of agendas are able to sort of intervene in at various points. Um, right. And, it, and, and the thing is, it requires more than technical knowledge to intervene in a, in a, in a helpful way. I mean, at some point the question has to be asked is like, why are you looking at it in this particular way? Why are you asking this question and not that one? Why are you assuming that these variables in the policy sphere have to be held constant? Whereas we could obviously change them. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. and the, the, the argument that will come back from people that think about this a little bit will be something like, well, we don't want to make any assumptions or we don't want to like relax our assumptions about how brittle and uh, sort of jaundiced the political system is or the, that, 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 that the economy is like how, how intractable those problems are. But I, I think that's the point is that like, no, <laughs> uh, when you leave those things constant, you are as an, as a, as an analyst, making a conscious choice to accept those facts rather than seeing them as variables. And yeah. yeah. I think a good point that Abby, Abby made in her Medium post, um, which bears repeating, is be, because we've had such a poor federal response uh, 
even in terms of collecting good data and, and making sense of good data, um, which itself is, even in best circumstances, is, can be subject to political influence, but at least there's a greater degree of transparency and public accountability. Uh, but instead, we've been seeing individual experts, especially from academia, using this moment as a way to advance their profiles and careers and particular ideas uh, in ways that are not accountable to the public, are not as transparent, and are funded by donors with particular ideological interests. So if you if you contrast the Emily Oster uh, exercise with the uh, something much better, the ACIP panel at CDC, the panel that makes vaccine priority recommendations, they mm-hmm. have expertise in a variety of fields. They have open mm-hmm. meetings with minutes. They have, uh, they're showing the things that they're considering, including ethical and equity considerations. Uh, you don't get that from the experts that are quoted daily in the media and that are influencing important policy debates. Mm-hmm. Right. Such an important point, Justin. I mean, I hope that for some people listening that this provides some clarity on what's going on here, because I know there is a lot of confusion and so much of that is dependent on the fact of transparency, which you were just talking about, Justin, which I think is so important here. So many people commenting on this, all these fucking op-eds that are just cringe. Mm -hmm. There is no transparency there both in terms of them giving access to what's informing their arguments, but also in terms of what their ultimate goal is at the end of the day that they're advocating for. And it's, uh, I think, something really important to watch for and push up against in this crisis, to be honest. I can't imagine um, how we'll survive it without trying to disrupt these like very uh, sort of austere-minded, intentionally scarce intellectual debates that are going on that really would benefit from the light of day a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I mean, I would love to see... So, like, part of the stated purpose of uh, Emily Oster's dashboard is... I mean, and I remember there were, like, there were news articles about this, you know, like, there, no one was collecting this data, so, like, Emily Oster stepped in, you know, to the, <laughs> to the breach or whatever. But um, I would also love for this to be, like, occasion for us to reflect on... Um, <laughs> oh, this is so dorky, but, like, public health, like, data infrastructure is really mm-hmm. bad. Like, it's not, it wasn't surprising to me, you know, that like Emily Oster was shocked to find that like no one was really collecting this data in like a centralized way. Um, <laughs> because the, because the foundations like, that funded her were part of a concerted campaign for 30 years to strip the public <laughs> service, <laughs> uh, strip the, 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 the public, like, the infrastructure to collect that fucking data. (laughs) And even simpler than that, to be shocked by these things, you have to like really believe in the whole project, right? You have to really believe that things are okay. Right. Right. (laughs) And to be, to be shocked by that, you have to be like, not that familiar with how like epidemiologic research is conducted. That's what I was going to say. That's the point. You have (laughs) to not know very much. Yeah. Yeah, Like no, I mean, like, I think that was like a lot of the frustration coming from public health people towards the dashboard was like, yeah, girl, like we know that (laughs) we know that this like data is not really out there. Like it's, yeah, it's really hard to collect and she's running into all these problems and it's like, yep, it's really hard to do this (laughs) comprehensively and well, like, it's almost like you kind of need 
like a central government. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Well, it just reminds me of that situation where I was looking for data on autoimmune diseases and I reached out to uh, Justin and Abby to be like, do you guys know any epidemiologists who work on this? Because it seems like there's no data set. And like the people that I was put in touch with were all like, yep, there's no data. If you look to countries with like a, like a national health system, there's better data. But in the U.S., like, we just, we don't, just don't know. We don't count how many autoimmune, how many people with autoimmune diseases there are. We just don't know. Right. And <laughs> it doesn't you, matter. The longer we, like, refuse to engage in that? these things, like, <laughs> the longer we can pretend that they're not um, problems that need to be addressed through public policy intervention. Yeah, Pesky I mean, leftists can't cite them in their studies, oh, the few, <laughs> the few no, of them that, that, that there expensive. are. <laughs> yeah, like, just... We can totally cut this out, but like my dissertation topic, I'm like, my dissertation is in like perinatal epidemiology. And like my dissertation topic is, or was, I guess, uh, severe maternal morbidity and mortality. And like, you know, we say that we care about maternal, like you would be hard pressed to find anyone in the whole United States who says like, <laughs> I straight up don't care about maternal health. Like I don't think it's important. But like babies, fuck them. Yeah, fuck, yeah. Your, fuck your unborn baby. <laughs> but like the data that are like available, right? Unless you, unless you do primary data collection, the data that are available to study the things that I study are like, not good, right? They're like <laughs> billing data that are collected for a totally different purpose, like not for research. So like, yeah, I think like a lot of confusion thrives in the disconnect between being, you know, like a comfortable person who expects like a certain level of, you know, truth and accuracy from official health communications and like what has actually been going on. No, I mean, I think there's just so much more to be considered mm -hmm. in the context of the school debate that's just not being talked about. And I really appreciate you guys taking the time to come today and, and sit down with us because not just because we enjoy hanging out with the two of you, but <laughs> also, um, you know, I know it's hard work to be continually sort of saying something that goes counter to orthodox opinions on Twitter and you just end up getting bombarded by... We know something about what that's like, yeah. Assholes, <laughs> like, like, Abby, you were joking on your alt that, like, a school district is after you, and I'm sure that... Well, also, like, you, what, you joked that they're the death panel epidemiology desk i mean we have to look them out of the basement right? sometimes you right know? Yeah. yeah they're all yeah. just downstairs next to scully and Mulder. yeah, yeah exactly yeah. It's, the, it's the death panel x-files and e -files. then the epidemiology desk yeah, yeah. exactly the yeah e <laughs> no um, worry though it's like a subsidiary with a lot of weird shell corporations it's not technically actually related but you know they're, they're, they're yeah they're i'm laundering all that tie-dye money for sure <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and at the top of the period uh, pyramid of course is mckinsey you know, right, right, our of sponsor <clears throat> but um, no one will ever prove it so yeah don't try <laughs> and uh did we get our yeah. ad read money oh i forgot <laughs> to thank raytheon i will next yeah, time yeah um <laughs> where can people find you guys you can't find me <laughs> or anything you guys want to plug i was hoping that was coming that was tight or any other people you want to plug who are good on this <laughs> yeah oh yeah so zoe hyde uh she's an australian epidemiologist who has is probably doing the most visible work that's that's saying wait a second we should look a little more thoroughly at this school stuff in relation to covid uh she's you can just search, search for her, her name zoe hyde on on twitter uh Teresa Chapel or Chappell? I don't know how to. It's like last name is spelled oh, like yeah. Apple. Oh yeah, but with a yeah. ch. She's awesome. 
She she's an another epidemiologist. So the, the those so I'm I'm Jay Feldman underscore Epi <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, and and then Abby <laughs> Abby has gone off main. She she's one of the great posters of our time, but she yeah. doesn't have all the fame. <laughs> it's okay. Everybody needs a break sometimes. It's called self care, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. protecting yourself from uh you know, from mommy school districts. <laughs> oh, it's fine. The school districts are fine. They were really, really um, mad at me. And it's, I mean, it's okay. They're allowed to be mad, but. Like, well, if Abby decides to come back on, it's Abby yeah. C. Science. <laughs> yeah, it's Abby C. Science. I'm not on their, I'm not like paid by them in any way. So I don't have to like listen to them yelling at me. But yeah, <laughs> my handle is Abby C. Science when I am on Twitter. And my, my, my actual work is on police violence and doing a project on the medical rationalization of deaths in police custody. And if you ever want to have me on, talk about that. Absolutely. We'll do that in the future. We would love to. Abby, Justin, thank you so much. It's thank been a pleasure you. as always. Patrons, thank you for supporting the show. We couldn't do this without you. Please uh, tell your friends, leave us a rating or review, help us yeah. with the algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Bye-bye. Awesome. Cool. Bye.
Sure. 